Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. Okay, hey, today's message is called Midwives, Moses, Pharaoh, and Power. We're going to look at a few verses that we looked at last week, and I want to riff on that again. I want to riff on that again this morning, and I want to basically say two things. I'm going to say two things this morning. I'm not going to say a dozen. I'm going to try to keep it to just two. But uh, I'll tell you right now, you probably need to brace yourselves. They're not incredibly easy things to hear. They're somewhat difficult. But uh, before we get to the scripture this morning, this is what I want to say. Uh, Our our world runs on all kinds of assumptions. um, All kinds of assumptions. And one of those assumptions that the world runs on is this. It's the assumption that power is always at the top. So powerful people are the ones who occupy the corner office. Powerful people are the ones who have all the money. Powerful people have prestige. Powerful people have influence and lots of friends. Powerful people are well-connected. Powerful people are the ones who do not take orders, but they give orders. These are the assumptions. This is how power works in the world. Uh, In order to be a powerful person, you need to be known, not just in your community, but you need to be maybe known in Frankfurt or Washington. Or if you want to be known financially, you need to be known in New York City, Chicago, and Atlanta. This is just the way that we know things go. And so there's all of these assumptions. And if we're really honest, then here's the part that takes some self-reflection and self-awareness. If we're really honest, these are the real temptations for most of us. Uh, Most of us in our own hearts are hoping for some kind of a form of world domination. If we're honest... If we're honest, you and I are hoping that we end up in the corner office with all the money and we tell people what to do and we never are told what to do. Uh, Most people are not dreaming of becoming uh, poor, uninfluential, and uh, a life full of troubles. Most 13-year-olds don't tell their mom, you know what I'm really hoping for? I'm hoping to be mediocre and poor. Nevertheless, our cultural assumptions of power are often quite different from what the Bible calls power. So, we're going to read a few verses this morning, and um, we're going to let our hearts be troubled. We read these verses last week. We're just going to read a much shorter section. This is Exodus chapter 1. This is after the Bible has said that the king in Egypt had forgotten Joseph and all of his people, and... Now he's setting in this plan of basically extermination because he's afraid of how powerful the Hebrew people are becoming and he's afraid he won't be able to keep them enslaved anymore. So we're just going to read this one little section here. Watch this. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua. Poor Pua. This is what he told them. When you help deliver the women as they give when you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called the midwives. Why have you done this? he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? 
The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They're more vigorous and they have their babies so quickly we cannot get there in time. It's kind of funny, actually. But beneath like the humor here, beneath the humor here, there's this little note, this lower note that's being played. I think it's really interesting. It's not really part of this morning's text, but it's so important for our own lives, I have to mention it. Okay, if the king of Egypt, if he's worried about the Hebrew people, if he's worried about them becoming stronger and his solution to them being stronger was to give them hard labor and more difficult labor and then harder and harder labor and to work them hard and to make their life difficult, what's the natural, what's the natural progression to being given harder tasks? You get stronger. Isn't that the way it works? Sometimes the way we try to exterminate an issue becomes the very way that issue expands in our life. Your smart people apply that. Verse 20. So God was good to the midwives and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. Hmm. Well, here's what's interesting in this passage to me. What's really interesting in this passage, but also further on and throughout the book of Exodus, is this. We'll start here. It's who gets named and who does not. Now, the book of Exodus is big story. Make a great movie. They try to make some movies out of it. And one of them is pretty classic. And then the modern versions of it, terrible. One of the problems with Hollywood is they never go all the way. They just need to leave it all in. Anyway. All these characters, and all the characters are well-formed, and you know them. So in the book of Exodus, we've got Moses. But then we also have Miriam. Y'all remember Miriam? Chapter 15, shakes a tambourine, sings a song. She goes full Pentecostal. That's a, you can laugh. I mean, it's a joke. She had her long skirt and tambourine. Moses, Miriam, there's Aaron, right? Aaron was supposed to help Moses talk. But then there's other, some other people in the book as well. How many of you guys remember Bezalel and Aholiab? Do you guys remember Bezalel and Aholiab? Travis, you don't? What the heck? This is Exodus chapter 31. Bezalel and Aholiab, they're the craftsmen who built the tabernacle of the Lord. They get named. Not only that, Not only that, but I hope you noticed in this morning's passage that the midwives are named. Isn't that interesting? The midwives are named Shipra and Pua. They're named. Now here's what's interesting. In a highly patriarchal society that would have been male-dominated only. Not only that, but when Exodus was written, it was written by patriarchal hands. Women didn't write it. It was written by men. 
What's super interesting to me is all these people get named, including the midwives, and the first three chapters of Exodus, they are radically feminine rather than masculine. In fact, the whole first three chapters of Exodus, it opens up with just women doing one heroic thing after another. It is not the men who are heroic, it is the women. Super interesting. And the Bible takes special note, and it names two of the midwives. Now, the reason this is so stunning is because when you take into account everybody who is named, and then you frame it against some people who are not named, it becomes really stark, and it becomes stunning, and it becomes shocking, and then this is where the Word of God begins to speak to us in a new way. Guess who is the one person in the book of Exodus that never gets named? Pharaoh. We never know Pharaoh's name. He is known only by his title. He is, on, he is known only by his position. He is never known by his personal name. And you have to ask yourself, well, why? Well, here's the first reason. This is part of the subversive nature of the scripture. It is a story written from the bottom. It was not a story written by powerful people. It was written by the weak and to the weak. And here's one of the issues we have as Americans. We come to the Bible as uh, the richest people who have ever lived in the, in, in the, the course of human history. We live in the richest nation in the richest time of human history. And most of, one of the things we don't understand is that our, that our culture that we've grown up in it actually blinds us to some of the things that the Bible is saying most clearly. We are definitely, culturally and historically, we are those at the top, and the Bible was written by those at the bottom for those at the bottom. It was not written by the powerful, it was written by the weak. And if there's anybody in here who were to be put into the book of Exodus, our most natural position would be Pharaoh rather than Moses. Now the good news is, is we can choose to be Moses. That's the good news. But just culturally speaking, it's written from the bottom to other people who are on the bottom. And so this is the way the Bible begins to upend and overturn our ideas of who is powerful and who is the hero. Everybody in the book of Exodus has a name, even God. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, Moses runs into the burning bush and God speaks from the burning bush and says, Hey, I want you to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says to him, well, who am I going to say has sent me? He's basically saying, who, what's your name? And God says, well, I am that I am. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's an answer without an answer. But in the book of Exodus, everyone has a name, including God, except for Pharaoh. It's the subversive nature of the scripture. It is, it is literally upending, if we can hear it and if we can see it, it is upending our ideas of who is powerful and what God says is powerful and what is important. This is a reconfiguration of our assumptions. And here is what's at the root of all real power. See, the American version of power says the root of power is position, money, and control. The Bible says that the root of power is this, being known and being named by God. That's it. Being his own possession. How many of you know that once you get named, once 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 you name something, you're responsible for it. See, that's actually, that's actually what Genesis is telling us. That's the important part about uh, Adam naming the animals in the garden. It, it, it's, it, we read that like some little fable. No, the, the important part there is that God continued to allow Adam to co-create with him. There was an aspect of creation that was yet left unfinished. And when Adam named it, he became responsible for it. 
So this planet we live on, we're actually responsible for it. You know, that's just the way it goes. So uh, the idea that Christians wouldn't be environmentalists is bizarre and crazy to me. Same thing here. It is the upending of the story. Who is powerful? Being powerful is being known and being named by God. That is where real power comes from. Uh, We see this also in the life of Jesus. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. It's one of my favorite stories. Jesus gets baptized. He goes under the water, and then when he comes out of the water, the dove, the Holy Spirit, comes down on him, and the Father speaks from heaven, You are my son. With you I'm well pleased. You make me happy. You know that story? Yeah. I love the message because it says, You make me happy. That's, that's the best. Right? And then the very next thing that happens to Jesus after he is declared to be the Son of God by the Father, Jesus goes into the desert where he is tempted by the devil for 40 days. And the devil tempts him three different ways. And at the beginning of every single one of the devil's temptations to Jesus, they all begin the very same way. It begins like this. If you are the Son of God, right? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, go to the highest part of the temple, throw it off, and let the angels catch you. If you are the Son of God, bow down to me, and I'll give you the whole world. See, it's always about being known and named by God. It's about being His possession. Where is the power? Real power is not an external demonstration of control or domination. It never is. It's being known and loved by God. It's being named. It's being called His own. Uh, You and I, we are not powerful because we're stronger or smarter or more impressive. We are powerful in our weakness. That's what Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. In our need and in the fact that we are named and known and accepted by God. This is the base note in the symphony of heavenly power. It is a subharmonic that kings and rulers of this world can scarcely hear. You can pass right over it. Most of the people who are controlling the world right now are not hearing this bass note that God is playing. See, we think the power rests in Washington. We think the power rests in New York City or Hong Kong or Los Angeles or in Hollywood. That's really not the truth. Uh, Real power might even be right here. It's, It's in being named and known by God. That's where the power is. And then to continue on with that idea... Story shows us something else as well. Oftentimes we believe that earthly power is mostly equated with strength and domination. It's sometimes measured with guns and tanks. But God's kingdom is often working off different metrics. See, in the Exodus story, the world's most powerful nation was defeated by a band of runaway slaves. See, we need to recap the story here for a second because this is real important. Pharaoh becomes concerned about the strength of the Hebrews. He says, let's kill them. Some midwives say, no, let's don't. Let's save them. And Moses gets floated down the Nile in a little bitty grass basket. He doesn't get eaten by the crocodiles and Pharaoh's daughter picks him up. He lives in Pharaoh's house as a prince for 40 years. And after 40 years of living at the top of the food chain, Pharaoh finally wakes up and realizes that it's his own people who are being enslaved and treated poorly. Remember he goes out and he sees he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, right? That was the day that Moses started to get saved in a brand new way. It took him decades to wake up to injustice. Oftentimes it does. Sometimes it takes us sometimes it takes us decades to wake up to the fact that we are privileged and sometimes our privilege actually blinds us. In fact, I would say not sometimes it always blinds us. 
the, the more privileged we are, the more blind we are. But we can wake up from it. That's what we see. And so after 40 years, Moses wakes up to the fact that his own people are slaves. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And in that spot, Moses takes matters into his own hands. And remember, and what does he do? Kills the Egyptian, right? Translation, Moses begins to fight injustice, but he does so on Egyptian terms. He had grown up in Egypt and he had learned Egyptian methods and he actually tries to free slaves with Egyptian means. And how well does that work? It doesn't. See, you can't strangle your way to freedom. You can't. And so Moses goes to the desert and he's, he's there for how long? 40 more years. How long does this stuff take? Forever. That's how long. 40 years. He's in the desert for 40 years. But here's what happens to Moses in the desert for 40 years. Two things happen. First thing that happens is he learns how to let go of Egyptian methods for bringing justice. That's really what happens. And, the, and we know what's really interesting about it. He doesn't even know that's what the desert is about. Mm-mm. But he's out there in the desert, completely forgotten and completely isolated. Sometimes we think that being forgotten is the worst thing that can happen to us. It's often the best thing that can happen to us. To be isolated where we are only known by God and our own family. It's, it's a gift. Just go with it. And Moses learns how to let go of Egyptian methods for addressing the injustice in the world. And he meets God in the burning bush. God says, we'll go back. And by the way, here's what I think. I think Moses woke up to the fact that God was actually in the world. I don't think God was in one bush. I think he's in all the bushes. I think there's burning bushes everywhere. It's not that God is in this one spot at this one moment. It's that he is everywhere and he's all the time. I think that's actually the revelation. And Moses goes back. Now he's 80 years old, right? And he speaks to the world's most powerful man. And he says, I want you to let these slaves go. Because I am that I am sent me. Then the plagues happen. And finally, finally, the Hebrews walk through the Red Sea. And it swallows up the Egyptian army. Do we know? And they're set free. Okay, so there's the whole story. Whole story in three and a half minutes. But how many of you understand... That there is no Moses, <clears throat> there is no desert, there is no burning bush, there is no speaking to Pharaoh, and there is no Red Sea, there is no parting of the waters without two midwives who said, we will not drown the boys. Now, this is very important. Because this is also upending our ideas of what power is. Where is the power? Where is the power? See, here's the deal. It's the midwives who did not murder the boys like they had been commanded. It's a redefinition of power. Here's what that little story tells us. It tells us that compassion and mercy are the roots of power. See, we think... We think Making people do what we say is powerful. But the Bible couldn't disagree more. Coercion is never power. How many of you know that you can make people fear you, but you can never make them love you? That's the problem with a dictator heart. You can make people do something, but they'll never love you. But the real roots of power apparently come out of mercy and compassion. Mercy and compassion. 
The world says that power is domination and money and position. But the Bible says that power is compassion and mercy and tenderness. And in the long run, it is compassion and mercy and tenderness which will overthrow the dominating slavery of empire. Empire is fine with exterminating the weak, but God's kingdom shows compassion. Empire is fine with brutal forms of practicality, but God's kingdom is appearing in inconvenience and mercy. This is what empire always does. Not just Egyptian empire, but all the empires, including our own. This is one of the issues with empire. Empire and nation states often run on this metric. It's the metric of efficiency and practicality. And when your metric of self-preservation is rooted in efficiency and practicality, you will become a brutal dictator who is fine with throwing the babies in the river that you might continue on. Does this make sense? If this one group of people is becoming too strong, then the solution, the most efficient solution, is just to throw some of those people into the water and let them drown. This is why efficiency and practicality can never ever be the base note for who we are in God or what we are doing in the world. Because as soon as we adhere to those forms, we're actually, we're actually submitting to an, an earthly principality and power that will inevitably dominate and enslave someone else. This is why, this is why we are so addicted to short-term solutions like shooting our way out of troubles or bombing our way out of troubles. I'm just going to lay this out here for a few minutes this morning one of the things that we believe uh, culturally i'm not just saying us here but i'm saying culturally wider in this country is that we believe that we if we just send enough drones to the middle east and drop enough bombs on houses that we will be safe we think that we can shoot our way out of radical um religious fundamentalism and i'm here to tell you you cannot shoot your way out of radical fundamentalist uh institutions and you cannot bomb your way out of a religious zealotry The only way out, the only way out, not just for us as a people, but for the world, the only way out will be uh, courageous acts of of justice, uh, mercy, and compassion. That will be it. Uh, If if the last 15 years haven't taught us this, I don't know what will. Uh, We went to Iraq, and all we did was create ISIS. That's it. And it's fine if you disagree with me, but uh, what we went to is we took out one brutal dictator and we came up with something worse. And how did we do that? We shot people. And in the process, you end up shooting all kinds of people and this doesn't help. You cannot shoot your way out of this kind of an issue. The only thing that's going to change the world right now is courageous acts of justice, love, compassion, and mercy. That is it. I realize this is high-minded idealism. I'm not even entirely sure how this church can engage on those levels but i do know this that egypt came down not because not because it was coerced it came down because two women at the beginning were compassionate and merciful and saved a leader that god had anointed that is it i'm telling you this is this is the stuff right now principalities and powers all over the world are trying to get us to look at one another as enemies but jesus says love your enemies Jesus says, love your enemies. Let me just translate that for us right now as well. Jesus is saying, uh, love gay people. 
He is saying love lesbians. He is saying love transvestites. He is saying love ISIS and show them mercy. He is saying love Muslims and show them mercy. If we think that by isolation or by, or by mechanization that we can efficiently deal with the problems that are in this world, we are wrong. It will not make for peace. Jesus weeps because we do not know for the things that make for peace. This is a huge problem. And in this country, the saddest thing to me is that Christians align with more of an ideology of warfare than we do with the Prince of Peace who gave his life. Jesus says, if, if someone asks you to go one mile, go two. If they ask you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. And if you have an enemy, you should love him. And if you are going to be taken to court, you should go meet your enemy on the way and work it out. This is gospel stuff. This is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus was not being metaphorical. He was being literal. Sometimes we assume that the brutal forms of practicality that are ruling our age are the only way forward. And I'm just here to say they're not. They're absolutely not. Um, I'll be super, super honest with you. I don't even know where to put this kind of theology when it comes into practice. We're learning it. We're actually learning it. And I think the whole world is going to learn this. But I'll just be honest with you. I don't see any way forward other than the church standing up with boldness, but with gentleness and beginning to proclaim the gospel of peace and compassion and mercy. Uh, the, The next phase for our world will not be fighting Pharaoh on Pharaoh's terms. It will be subverting Pharaoh with compassion and, and, and mercy like midwives. That's it. That is it. Secondarily, sometimes we assume that in order to affect real change, we we have to be influential, that we need to be well-connected and known. Sometimes it works like this. Sometimes we see the trouble in the world. Sometimes we see the injustice in the world. Some of you have lived in Campbellsville long enough to know where it hurts, right? And, And sometimes we see the injustice that's in our own state. Sometimes we see the way in which eastern Kentucky is not as blessed as the rest of the state. And sometimes we think in order to make those changes that we need to be uh, influential, that we need to be well-connected, that we need to be powerful, and that we need to have lots of money in order to affect real change. But the biblical narrative this morning is that's not true at all because the real change started at the bottom with two midwives who were insignificant, but they were, in, they were significant to God, and they were named, and they changed their country. But notice this. It didn't come quickly. It didn't come quickly. Uh, their courageous acts uh, didn't show up as courageous acts overnight. It took 80 years for Moses to come back with a prophetic word of the Lord. It took 80 years. Compassion and mercy are not usually paid off quickly. Compassion and mercy are usually not uh, paid off overnight. Uh, The payoffs uh, don't show up in a week or a month. They usually take years and possibly decades. If you you give your life to compassion and mercy, there's a good chance that that, that you're not going to see any fruit of that in the next year. Uh, If you give your life to compassion and mercy, you may not even see the fruit of that in a decade but eventually you will not only that but but one of the things i have to point out in the text is that no one thanks the midwives compassion and mercy is usually a thankless job uh no one no one congratulates the midwives they uh, they didn't they didn't get a bonus they didn't get a medal of honor They, they didn't get congratulated there was no thankfulness But it's okay. We don't have to be thanked. 
In fact, this is one of the themes that runs all through the Bible is oftentimes when we're doing the very thing that God has for us, it's oftentimes going to lead us to really thankless places. If you haven't been thanked in a while, you, you might be doing just what God wants you to do. One of my favorite stories, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is John chapter 2. You know that whole thing, Jesus turns water into wine, right? It's a really cool story. Jesus turns 150 or 180 gallons of water into 150 or 180 gallons of wine for people who had already had too much to drink. Amazing story. And at the end of that story, no one thanks Jesus. Go back and read it. Jesus doesn't get congratulated. In fact, if you read the story closely, this is the crazy part. Someone else gets the credit. Who gets the credit? The groom. The head of the banquet says to the groom, Oh my gosh, most people serve the good stuff first. And if they've had a little drink, then they serve the bad stuff because they don't know, right? But you've saved the best to last. Imagine this. The, the, the head of the ceremony says to the groom, man, most people save the good stuff up front and then they serve the crappy wine later. But you've saved the best to last. And Jesus is standing over here in the corner getting completely unthanked, right? Yeah. See, sometimes we think... Sometimes we think that the work of God is noticeable and it's seen. It almost never is. There's a real good chance that if you're doing the right thing, you might not get noticed or seen or thanked. But that's okay too. This is what we call downward mobility. Downward mobility. Our culture is obsessed with upward mobility, right? Everything up and to the right. You know that. Actually, up and to the right. But the kingdom of heaven is usually interested in down and to the left. This is how God works. He's among the weak. He's among the poor. He's among the nobodies. He's among the least and the lost. And those who have no rights. And those who have no persuasion. This is where God's kingdom is showing up. See, what God names and honors is justice for the weak. And you don't have to be particularly powerful yourself. You don't have to go out and start a new initiative either. This is also very important. The midwives, they were able to cooperate with what God was doing just by doing the thing they'd always done. They were midwives and they just kept being midwives. And, but here's what they did. They, they, they doubled down on the essence of what it means to be a midwife. They didn't become abortionists. Does this make sense? See, sometimes we think in order to bring justice to the world, to do love and justice and mercy, to do compassion, we think, well, we have to go out and start a new initiative. Well, no, you actually probably don't. You can actually do compassion and mercy right where you're at right now. If you're a teacher, for the love of God, please do not quit. Don't go get a better job. Uh, if, you, if you're an educator, uh, don't go start a 501c3 nonprofit so that you can do some good in our community. No, like retire as a teacher. Like show up every single year and do compassion and do mercy right there. And here's the truth. You won't be thanked. You won't. And you might not even see the results of it now, but in a decade or two, you can. 
the midwives didn't change their jobs. They didn't go out and start a new initiative. They didn't start a 501c3. You know, here's the thing. If you're a healthcare provider right now, for the love of God, do not quit your job. Like, show up every single day and just keep doing justice and mercy. Like, don't go start some new thing. Now, if Jesus tells you to start a new thing, you definitely should do that. His voice always trumps mine. But at the same time, at the same time, sometimes we assume that God is saying, get out of that thing you're doing because it's terrible and go and start some new high-minded thing in order to bring goodness. And oftentimes that's just not the case. Just go ahead and do what you're doing. Like every single thing that is being done, everything that is represented in this room, everyone's life who is represented, every workplace, every family, every environment, every neighborhood that's represented here, every single one of us is set in a place that needs compassion and mercy interjected into it. And every one of us can do it. We don't have to be powerful people. We don't have to be known. We don't have to be well-connected. We don't need any money. Justice and mercy can come wherever we're at right now. We don't have start a new initiative we don't have to go to a a special camp we don't have to go to a special conference and have a super spiritual person lay their hands on us we can do it right here right now it's available injustice and brutality infects every job and every position so here's the question and it's a question i will not answer because it's one of those that we need to deal with right now we need to begin to ask ourselves we need to begin to ask ourselves In our city, in our state, in our nation, but especially in our city, where is Pharaoh trying to get us to drown the babies? I have some ideas, but I'm not going to share them with you. And here's why. Because as soon as I tell you some of my ideas you'll begin to encapsulate it as, the, as if those were the only things that God was talking about. This actually needs prayer. Like, I'm, like, for real, like, we need to pray about this. Where is Pharaoh trying to get someone or someones in our city to drown the babies? Where, where is efficiency and practicality turning into brutality in our city? Where is fear, where is fear driving people, driving people to drown someone else in our city. It's ha- no, it is happening, okay? This is happening. And by the way, this doesn't, mean, this doesn't mean that we have a bunch of evil people in office in our town either. Well, we really don't. We have some good people. What I'm saying is a lot of this stuff works at subharmonic levels that we're completely unaware of. We just assume it, oh, you know, it's just life, right? This is why we need prayer. We need prayer to wake up to what really is happening. Where is Pharaoh trying to get us to drown the babies? Second question. We need prayer, okay? Where is God inviting me to do acts of justice, love, and compassion in our city that might keep somebody out of the water? Frame it a different way. We'll frame it in a, another Exodus way. Where is God asking me to build some little Where is God asking me to build some little grass baskets that I can put Moses in? Right? What's interesting is Moses did go in the water, right? But not without a basket. Where, where is that? I'll just be super honest with you guys. I, I don't have a ton of faith that I can change anything in our nation, but I have a ton of faith. I, have a, I do have a ton of faith that we can change a ton right here. A ton right here. One of the words the Lord keeps giving um, us 
for our city is that Campbellsville is supposed to be a prototype city. For what? For everything. I mean, it's the reason, I've shared this with you before, but it's the, and I want to share it again. It's the reason that Eric Kirchin painted that painting on the side of Hardened Coffee. That is not just something cool. That is a prophetic declaration over our city. Central Kentucky is the future. The future of what? Music, technology, education, communion and, and, and connection. These are the things. Go and look at the sign. It's all up there. Where can we, by justice and mercy and compassion, begin to pull some people out of the water? Right? That's, that's what wins. That's what wins. Not short term either. Long term. Long term. Long term. Long term. Um, um, it, it, I have some friends. They live, they live in Ohio. They have a, little, they have a community. It's, it's a great community. And uh, in order to be a part of their community, you have to take a vow of stability. This is kind of, anybody have heard of that? It, in order to be a part of their community, you have to take a vow of stability. And this is the vow of stability. You promise to, to be in the community and not leave for 10 years. If you don't promise to 10 years, you can't be in. Why? Because they recognize that nothing good happens in a year and tons of stuff happens in 10. Most of us overestimate what can happen in a year and underestimate what can happen in 10. And we have to start thinking like that for our city. Um, there are some things that are afoot in Campbellsville and Taylor County that are not okay and they need to be addressed right here. And we won't, we won't be able to get the upper hand by fighting Egypt with Egyptian methods. No, 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 no. We're smarter than that. Let's begin to tangle with Egypt with midwife methods. Compassion and mercy. How many times in the Gospels does it say that Jesus had compassion on them and healed them all? That was, that was the root of Jesus' whole ministry. The leper guy comes up to Jesus and says, I know you can heal me if you're willing. Jesus stops, touches him, says, I'm willing. Oh, man, what a story. What a story. I think this is for us, you guys. I think this is for us. Why don't we do this? Why don't you stand up? And if you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come forward? We're going to wait on the Lord and pray here just for a second before we wrap it up. Oh, man, ministry professionals. Two good teams. People who know how to pray for people. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Lord, we love you this morning. Oh, man, thanks for church. Thanks for being together. Thanks for people we know and love. Thanks for planting us in this place. God, would you begin to show us um, the places and the people that you would like us to respond to with compassion and mercy? Like, God, would you show us the real practical things that we can do uh, to extend your goodness to other people? God, uh, systems uh, in our city that are essentially running on the brutal forces of practicality that, that, that drown people. God, would you show us where they are and would you give us a plan for actually subverting those with kindness? Mm-hmm. 
Thanks, Lord. Hey, we did this first service, but I feel like we're supposed to do it second service as well. Uh, if you're a teacher or an educator, high school, elementary, middle school, or college, whatever, if you're, can, can you come forward? We want to pray for you this morning because our, our church is just filled with educators. Can, we just, I, I feel like there's just something so important. There's so much mercy that, yeah, come on up here. We're in, yeah, come on over here. And come on, look at this, all these people. Travis, what are you doing, dude? Get up here. You're a freaking teacher. You're like a free agent teacher. You teach all over the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, if I can have a few more people who know how to pray. Like, if you've been trained in vineyard ministry, will you come up and just grab one of these people in an appropriate manner and pray for them? I'm going to, and I'm going to, yeah, 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 come on. Come on, come on, come on, come on down. I just had this feeling that, gosh, the places where we're intersecting young people is just such an opportunity to show mercy and compassion. Lord, we ask that you would do that. God, would you help everybody who is here? Would you help us all? Whether we're educators or not, God, would you help us to extend kindness and mercy into the world? Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Happy Sunday. High five and a hug. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.